Welcome to Open Your Eyes, a podcast about empowering each of us with the perspective and tools to grow and change. Thanks for joining us today. Now, I'm excited to spend a few minutes with you today, and thank you to all of you who have been sending us messages about this podcast. Our goal is to bring a bit of encouragement, positivity, and inspiration to our listeners each week. So, today, wherever you are as you listen to this podcast, I hope what you hear today can bless your life and help us all live a little bit better. By the way, if you find these podcasts helpful, you could help by sharing them with a friend. Word of mouth helps us further our mission. Just share it and say something like, I thought you might enjoy this podcast. Have a great day. And that would help us expand our mission and keep doing a little bit of good. Let's get started. Today, I'd like to talk about how we can come to see the view of other people and see what's happening all around us in our life. You know, with all the news surrounding the devastating events taking place in Israel and Palestine, it's hard to see anything else happening in that region. But tragedies of huge proportions have taken place that have taken tens of thousands of lives and in some cases will take decades to overcome. And you know, it's not uncommon for something in our individual lives and in our news cycle to dominate our view. We get so focused on one thing that we miss other events and circumstances and people that should deserve our attention. If you travel west from Israel across Egypt, you'll arrive in Libya. And several weeks ago, Libya was the first place Storm Daniel hit after crossing the Mediterranean Sea. Storm Daniel was regarded by researchers from Yale University as the deadliest to hit North Africa or any country on the African continent or any region outside the Northern Atlantic in recorded history. It is the deadliest storm globally since Typhoon Haiyan hit the Philippines in 2013. The storm started as a low-pressure system off the coast of the Balkans, then caused flooding in Greece, generating 55 times the average rainfall in a month. Rivers overflowed, bridges were destroyed, and damage and debris was left in the storm's path. In Thessaly, over 800 people had to be rescued amidst collapsed building and bridges and submerged villages. Meteorologists classified the storm as Greece's worst since 1930. The floods in Thessaly, which supplies about 15% of Greece's agricultural production, destroyed the crops for the remainder of the year and caused serious long-term damage as a thick layer of mud made the soil infertile, taking up to five years to become fully functional again. The storm then turned towards northern Africa, intensifying as it went. All the forecasts said it would make landfall in Libya. The prime minister of Libya declared a state of emergency and closed all the oil ports in the country. You see, oil is the lifeblood of Libya's economy. Well, decades earlier, Gaddafi transformed Libya into a socialist state. During Gaddafi's regime, he hired a Yugoslav company to build several dams on the Derna River, which travels from the mountains to the Mediterranean coast through the Wadi Derna, a river valley that's located near the coast. The total drainage basin for the river valley is 575 square kilometers. Well, these two large dams were built to manage the flow of the Derna River and to irrigate agricultural lands and protect against flooding downstream. 
particularly into the city named Derna and the Derna River Valley. The port city of Derna is located in the drainage basin, and it has a population of about 90,000 people. It was a vibrant, busy port city. Experts had long said that floods posed a significant danger to these two dams, and they repeatedly called for immediate maintenance of the two structures. But successive corrupt governments in Libya didn't react. One expert wrote, in the event of a big flood, the consequences will be disastrous for the residents of the valley and city. Cracks had been reported in subsequent inspections for almost two decades, but the government did nothing about it. Well, as Storm Daniel came ashore in Libya, it dumped 10 inches of rain in six hours. As the huge amount of water from two river systems converged above the Derna Dam, the immense pressure of the water caused the dam to collapse. The residents of Derna woke up to loud explosions before floodwaters pounded the Mediterranean city. The flood from the broken dams unleashed a wall of water two stories high that wreaked devastation and swept entire neighborhoods out to sea. In just seconds, apartment buildings were washed away along with roads and bridges. Hospitals quickly filled up. Hundreds of dead bodies were left on the streets. Thousands of families searched for loved ones, most of whom were taken to the ocean and would never be found. In the end, one report says that 11,300 people were killed and an additional 10,000 were missing. Floods flattened Derna City, and officials have estimated as much of a quarter of the city was completely erased. And if this weren't enough to capture our attention and focus, two days before the collapse of the dams in Libya, to the west in Morocco, the most severe earthquake to hit that country in six decades struck in western Morocco. More than 2,900 people were killed and 5,500 people injured in the shallow magnitude 6.8 quake. The earthquake heavily damaged parts of the ancient section of Marrakech and flattened remote towns in the Atlas Mountains. The traditional mud houses had no chance against the quake. In the village of Tagardirte, where few buildings had been left standing, 66-year-old Mohammed Auchin described how residents pulled 25 people alive from the rubble in the immediate aftermath. One of those rescued was his own sister. The level of destruction is absolute, he said. Not a single house has stayed upright. The problem is that the quake zone was in very hard-to-reach areas. For several reasons, we don't see what is happening to these people. We have our focus somewhere else. We have a blind spot to what has happened. And you know, we have blind spots in our life. We sometimes don't see what's happening around us in our own lives. Do we focus on one thing so much that we can't see other important things? It happens to you and me all the time. We focus on our job and fail to see what's happening in the lives of our team. We focus on ourselves and our own struggles, and we can't see outside ourselves to the lives of other people. We forget that certain elements of our life need attention, like our mental and physical health, while we focus on our career or other things. We focus on life, sometimes neglecting the view of life through a spiritual lens, for example. Well, years ago, I used to use a simple video to demonstrate this principle of how to open your eyes to what's happening around you. I would prime the audience to be competitive 
by saying the video demonstrated the differences between men and women. Then I asked them to focus on counting the number of times a basketball was passed between players wearing a certain color shirt. Then I would start the video and people would focus on their counting. All the while, a gorilla emerges in the middle of the players, pauses, pounds its chest, and leaves the shot. But only a few people would ever see the gorilla. Most didn't see it because they were focused on their thing, their counting. Then we would discuss why we can't see something obvious right in front of our eyes when our focus is somewhere else. It is a true gift, for example, to be able to see lives from another person's view. And it takes practice and a few skills to set aside your own view. For example, you're a better parent when you see things from your children's view, and you're a better leader when you see through your team's view. So if this happens to you and me, and we want to be able to better see what is happening and improve our view, then how do we do this? And how can we develop the skills necessary? First, let's consider advice from Dr. Phil. One of the greatest limitations, he said, we face as human beings is that we look at the world from our own subjective perspective, especially in situations that directly involve us. Anytime there's something personal at stake, you've got a built-in bias, right? But it doesn't have to be so one-sided. If you can develop the ability to really see through another person's eyes, you'll be tapping into an incredibly powerful tool for managing your life. It's a skill you can cultivate just like flipping a pancake, seeing both sides of the pancake. A long time ago, I had a job training salespeople. There was a refrain we often repeated. If I'm going to sell Bill what Bill buys, I better see things through Bill's eyes. And you don't have to work in sales to benefit from that mindset. You glean tremendous insight when you understand someone else's currency, feelings, and circumstances. That's why you've always got to work to flip the pancake so you can see the other side. Notice I said work. You have to make a conscious effort to do it. When I'm negotiating, I don't think of it just as a matter of trying to get what I want. My priority is to give the other person as much of what he wants as possible which I can only do once I uncover what makes him tick, what he believes, what he fears, and what he values. Otherwise, nothing I say will resonate. I get to see both sides of the pancake every day. Parents tell me their son is wildly out of control and list 20 examples that leave me thinking he's headed straight for juvie. Then the boy tells me what he endures day after day from his abusive, histrionic, demeaning mom and dad. When you know where the other person is coming from, that knowledge is power. Without it, you'll never get to the real issue. And as you've probably heard me say before, 50% of the solution to any problem lies in defining it. Once you figure that out, you're halfway home, but you can't get there until you flip the pancake. Now, if there were one skill that would allow us to better navigate life and leading and people, it would be to flip the pancake and see things from another's view. In his classic bestseller, How to Win Friends and Influence People, Dale Carnegie teaches, try honestly to see things from the other person's point of view. Carnegie continues, if out of reading this book, you get just one thing, an increased tendency to think always in terms of other people's point of view and see things from their angle, it may easily prove to be one of the building blocks of your life and career. You know, 
one of my favorite comics depicts the perspective of two people. The first is a man wearing tattered clothing and standing on a small desert island. And it's obvious from his skinny frame and long tattered hair that he's been marooned on the island for some time. And in the distance, he can see a small boat approaching with a person aboard that boat waving his hands. The caption in the scene says, boat, which is being yelled by the man on the island. The second scene of the comic is from the view of the man on the boat. This man is also tattered, although too far away for the man on the island to see. The man on the boat is without food or water. And the view of this man is that he can see a man on an island. The caption shows this man yelling, land, land. Each man has his own perspective. And the man on the land can only see a boat to leave the island. And the man on the boat can only see land to leave his boat. So... If you're leading a team or raising kids or working in any type of organization, you know that there are some people who can never leave their own perspective. It happens to all of us from time to time. When we follow our mood or anything else, we can't see what they see. Now, researchers call this thing perspective-taking, and perspective-taking is a well-researched area of human development. For example, Jean Piaget determined that children around 9 or 10 can start to understand that people, when standing in a different place, have a different view. And they understand that when a person does this, their organization of things or view of things will differ. Other researchers have shown that children can start to take on role-playing, and when they do, they can imagine a perspective different from their own. And almost all psychologists agree that to be happier, And to develop as human beings, we must be able to take on another person's view. So the question remains, how do we do that? Well, it's not just by trying to see things from someone else's view. In fact, this by itself doesn't work well at all. Almost no research has shown that trying to take the perspective of another actually increases your insight into what they truly think, feel, or want. Researchers, including one from Ben-Gurion University in Israel, recently explored this concept through a series of 25 experiments with a total of 2,800 people from the U.S. and Israel. They asked these people to predict the thoughts, feelings, and preferences of other people, ranging from complete strangers to their spouses. Well, in the first experiment, people were asked to assess strangers and use photos to assess their emotions and to determine whether statements about them were true or false. In short, they failed. People in the perspective-taking group were less accurate than people who were just asked blindly to assess the stranger's perspective. Perspective Perspective-taking didn't help accuracy. If anything, it hurt it. Well, the next series of experiments asked people to predict the opinions and preferences of their romantic partner. This included predicting whether the person liked particular activities, jokes, videos, or art, or whether they were likely to agree with certain opinions. Once again, participants who were asked to engage in perspective-taking did worse than those not given instructions. So if just perspective-taking, trying to see another person's view, doesn't help with real understanding, then what can you do better to understand others? Well, the research went on to show that you gain understanding about someone only when you acquire new information about them. Instead of perspective taking, you need to do some perspective getting. In the final test, researchers asked people to ask their romantic partners about their opinions 
on various topics, and the results of the test were clear. If you want to know what another person thinks, perhaps the best strategy is to ask and listen. Now, this may seem obvious, but in the study, those that asked their partner's opinions didn't believe they guessed more questions right than the participants in other conditions. But despite their lack of belief, they scored high on understanding. People didn't seem to be aware of how effective listening really is. You know, sometimes we just need to give it a chance, and we'll be surprised how powerful it is. With people in our life, I know that just listening and affirming them gets us much further than correcting or criticizing or condemning. Years ago, Dr. Covey coined the phrase, seek first to understand before seeking to be understood. And so much of the contention and misfortune in our world today, and perhaps in our own lives, so much of the progress we need to make with people could be solved and achieved by genuinely understanding each other. Covey believed that you can influence others by developing first a deep understanding of their needs and perspectives. He said, because you really listen, you become influenceable. And being influenceable is the key to influencing others. Now, some of you listening to this podcast are building a business. We make a lot of business misjudgments when we assume things about others. We make mistakes when we guess based on what we think someone's perspective really is. When it is within our power to first seek to understand. You see, the ability to hear is a gift, but the willingness to listen is a choice. And for many of us, we assess the world today and look at the conflicts and wars, and we ask ourselves, why all the fighting? Why the deep resentments? And if you, like me, have been reading the news, you likely saw recently the picture of a Palestinian woman and a Jewish man face-to-face, inches from each other, both yelling and no one listening. You know, Gaza is a narrow strip of land sandwiched between Israel and the Mediterranean Sea. It's just 25 miles long and a few miles wide and has more than 2 million inhabitants. It's one of the most densely populated places on earth. In the wake of the 1948-49 war, Gaza was occupied by Egypt. Israel then occupied Gaza in the 1967 war and stayed that way until 2005. During that time, they built Jewish settlements. Then Israel withdrew its troops and settlers in 2005, though it retained control over its airspace, shared border, and shoreline. And the UN still considers the territory to be occupied by Israel. A negotiated peace between Palestinians and Israel did seem possible at certain points in history. A series of talks in Norway became the Oslo peace process, forever symbolized by a ceremony on the White House lawn presided by President Bill Clinton. And in a historic moment, the Palestinians recognized the state of Israel and Israel recognized its historical enemy. A self-governing Palestinian authority was set up. Peace efforts finally stalled in 2014 when talks failed between the Israelis and Palestinians. Now Gaza is ruled by Hamas, an Islamist group which has said they're committed to the destruction of Israel. Hamas won the Palestinians' last elections in 2006 and seized control of Gaza. And with more people killed this year than any prior in this ongoing conflict, you wonder, is there any hope? Were the Hamas terrorist assassinations carried out by Hamas against Israel retaliation or a move to gain popularity with their own people to keep them in power? Will peace ever be possible? These are important questions. 
You know, peace is something messy. It's fragile and even harder to maintain, especially in this part of the world where both sides are deeply hurt physically and mentally, one leader leading the peace process said. We believe what's lacking in the region is some understanding and trust. And without that, you cannot continue the work that is needed for peace. Well, the same goes for you and me. In anything we're trying to do or in relationships we're trying to build, until there's understanding, we travel in a circle, repeating the same mistakes from the same misunderstood mindset we always have. You know, several years ago, scientists at the Biological Cybernetics Institute conducted a revelatory study. They examined whether we as human beings have the ability to walk or travel in a straight line. In their first study, they examined the trajectories of people who walked for several hours in the Sahara Desert and in the second, in the Beinwald Forest in Germany. The scientists outfitted the participants with GPS systems and instructed them to walk in a straight line Then they mapped their travels. What they soon learned was most people, absent clear landmarks, don't walk in a straight line. They walk in circles. One scientist theorized this happens because one of our legs is stronger than the other, causing us to unconsciously travel in circles. But as it turns out, the circles were rarely in a systematic direction. Often the person veered to the left and then would veer to the right. What researchers soon learned is that walking in circles is a result of increasing uncertainty about where straight ahead is. Small random errors in the various sensory signals that provide information about walking direction add up over time, making what a person perceives to be straight ahead drift away from the true straight ahead direction. The people would travel in one direction, think they needed to make a course correction only to travel in another wrong direction. They misread cues and landmarks and were consistently unsure of their direction. You see, people need to use reliable cues to walk in a straight line. For example, a tower or a mountain in the distance. And without those cues or a knowledge of how to use them, people fail to travel in a straight line. Now, the same goes for us. As we deal with people who are different from ourselves, if we listen, if we seek to understand, Even though right now our business or life feels like we're walking without landmarks, walking in circles, with understanding, we can find the needed cues to walk in straight path, to walk a straight path to the peace that comes from a true view of other people in our life. So today, what if you did something different? What if you took time to really listen to the person that you're misreading? or the business partner with whom you're not connecting? What if you really sought to understand? You may not solve everything in one conversation, but I bet your knowledge of how you can help them, your cues, your landmarks will increase and your influence with them will improve. You know, I know firsthand the difficulties in understanding or in forgiving when we've been done wrong. And I don't judge anyone who's trying to forgive something terrible that's been done to them or their family. I don't judge them for their misunderstanding. In Iran, Abdullah Hozenda was stabbed and killed in a street brawl in the autumn of 2007 when he was only 18. He knew his killer, Bilal. The two, barely out of their teens at the time, had played football together. Abdullah was the second son of Alinahad, and she had lost her youngest as he died in a motorbike accident when he was 11. Well, furious in her grief, 
she was determined Bilal would hang. It was her right to stay the execution or let it proceed. But as Bilal's execution date drew nearer, Abdullah appeared to his mother in a series of vivid dreams. Ten days before the execution was due, I saw my son in a dream, asking me not to take revenge, but I couldn't convince myself to forgive, she said. Two nights before that day, I saw him in a dream once again, and this time he refused to speak to me. Well, the day before Bilal's execution, a stream of relatives flowed through her house, painfully aware of the grief she had carried for years since her son was killed. None of them attempted to change her mind. I stood very firm in my belief that I wanted him punished, she said. As Abdullah's legal guardian, Alina Had's husband had the power under Iranian law to overturn the death penalty, but he had relinquished that responsibility to his wife. We couldn't sleep that night. I told my husband just two days before that I can't forgive this man, and maybe there would be a possibility, but I couldn't persuade myself to forgive, she said. My husband said, look to God and let's see what happens. Well, in the early hours of the execution day, Elinahad was outside the gates of the prison, among the crowd gathered for Bilal's execution. You have the final say, my husband said, she recalled. He said, you've suffered too much. We'll do as you say. After the recitation from the Quran was read, prison guards had hooked a rope around Bilal's neck as he stood on a chair, blindfolded, his hands tied behind his back. Seconds away from what could have been his final breath, Bilal pled for his life and called out for mercy. Please forgive, he shouted, if only for my mom and dad. Alain had recalled, I was angry. I shouted back, how can I forgive? Did you show mercy to my son's mom and dad? Others in the crowd watching the scene in anguish also called out for the family to spare Bilal's life. Bilal's fate then took an unexpected turn. Alinahad climbed upon the stool, and rather than pushing away his chair to his death, she slapped him across the face. After that, I felt as if rage vanished within my heart. I felt as if the blood in my veins began to flow again, she said. I burst into tears, and I called my husband and asked him to come up and remove the noose, which he did. Bilal was declared pardoned. Bilal's mother, Cobra, sobbing, reached across the fence separating the crowd from the execution site, and embraced Alinahad before reaching to kiss her feet, a gesture of respect and gratitude. One week after pardoning Bilal, Alinahad has found peace that she had lost since her son's death. Losing a child is like losing a part of your body. All these years, I felt like a moving dead body myself, she said. But now I feel very calm. I feel at peace. I feel that vengeance has left my heart. You know, everything is a choice. This is life's greatest truth and its hardest lesson, perhaps. It is a great truth because it reminds me of our power, not power over others, but power to be ourselves and to choose our path and how we will respond. Will you and I choose to listen, to understand? Will we choose to see what's happening around us? It's our choice. So today, listen. Seek to understand, see things from another's perspective, and perhaps this world, your world, and the world we share together can be a better place. Most of all, thanks for being here today. And don't forget to share this podcast with a friend 
And join us next week for another podcast as we learn to open our eyes to who and what we can become. Thank you.